0: Coming up today on A Daily Walk.
1: You study the word contextually. Also, I study this passage of Scripture comparatively, comparing Scripture with Scripture. There are many references that Jesus makes to Old Testament prophetic Scripture. And so it's important that I understand that when I study this, I study it comparatively because the best commentary on the Bible, get this, it's the Bible. And if the Bible says something about the Bible, you know that it's true. Regardless of what some commentator will say, if the Bible says this, you know the commentator's wrong.
0: With a passion to see Christians develop a fruitful and victorious walk with Jesus, this is A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. Currently, we're in a verse-by-verse study of Luke's Gospel. Today, we'll be considering questions about the future as we open the 21st chapter. Jesus told us there would be signs to look out for in between his first and second comings, and they would increase as time goes on. Let's turn to chapter 21 and see what he has to say about this.
1: Luke chapter 21, drawing your attention now to the first four verses. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. And so he said, Truly I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these, out of their abundance, have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. Over the last several studies in the Gospel of Luke, we have been considering the final week of the ministry of Jesus. During that final week, many things occurred leading up to his crucifixion. On Sunday, Jesus made his way into the city of Jerusalem. And as he made his descent, riding upon the foal of a donkey down the Mount of Olives, the people began to gather around, waving palm branches, shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that celebration would be short-lived, for at the end of that week, many of those same people would be crying out, crucify him. On Monday, Jesus, for a second time in his ministry, went into the temple area, and he observed the religious leaders taking advantage of the people. The purpose of the temple was to be a house of prayer, but they had made it a den of thieves. Jesus, full of righteous anger and indignation, began to overturn once again the table of the money changers and drive out all of the animals, restoring order to the temple. And then the Bible says that all of the blind and the lame were able to come and to be healed by Jesus. On Tuesday, Jesus arrived early that morning in the temple and stayed the entire day for what appeared to be the last day of his public ministry. The religious leaders came and presented some of the most controversial questions of the day in order to ensnare Jesus and tried to find some incriminating evidence with which to convict him. However, they were unsuccessful. Jesus answered all of their questions and silenced them in the process." Well, now Jesus is still in this temple area, and Luke informs us that something grabbed his attention. It says here that Jesus saw the rich putting in their gifts into the treasury, and he also saw a poor widow putting in two mites into the treasury. In Mark's gospel, the 12th chapter, which is a parallel passage of this incident where Jesus is in the treasury, it says that he looked up right after he had spoken some warnings to his disciples about the Pharisees. Mark chapter 12 says this, Jesus told them to beware of the Pharisees who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. It was right after that that Jesus lifted up his eyes, and Mark tells us he observed. It means to gaze intently as you look. Jesus wasn't looking so much at how much people were giving, but Jesus was looking at the way in which they were giving. The treasury area here that the Bible speaks of was a large open court in the temple precinct known as the court of the women. You had the inner court where only the men could go, but then this court was where everyone could go and set up within this court of the women. There were 13 donation boxes where people could come and bring their offerings before the Lord. Now keep in mind, the Pharisees were lovers of money. They were lovers of recognition, and they loved the applause of men when they would bring their gifts into the area, and they desired to be recognized. That is why, if you turn back just a few pages to Matthew's gospel, the sixth chapter, you'll see Jesus' exhortation to his disciples. Go back just a few pages to Matthew chapter six, and what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, and look at the first few verses of the sixth chapter. Jesus gives an exhortation to his disciples. He says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. The reason that Jesus gives this warning to his disciples was due to the fact that they had observed this many times. They had watched men come into the temple area with the desire to be recognized and to have their contributions acknowledged. And they would sound the trumpet when they did it. They would strike up the band before they came in with a cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And people would go, wow, those guys are seriously committed. Look how much they gave. Jesus said, if that is the way you give your charitable contributions, he said, that will be your only reward. Oh, man may recognize your demonstration and applaud you for it, but heaven does not approve. Jesus then gave unto his disciples some principles as it related to their charitable giving. And we find here, Jesus said that their giving was to be done in secret. That is, it was to be done anonymously, not in a way that would draw attention to themselves, but in a way that would bring glory to God. I believe that in the scriptures, we have a number of principles as it relates to giving to God. First of all, it is to be an act of worship that's what it is. As much as singing songs to the Lord, raising our hands in praise to God, or serving the Lord in some capacity, giving to God is an act of worship just as much as any of those other things are. Secondly, it is to be an individual matter. The Bible says, let each one give as he purposes in his own heart. That's between you and Jesus. The percentages are found in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit gives you direction. That's between you and the Lord. It's also to be given with an understanding, an understanding that I am investing into the kingdom of God, and I will reap what it is I sow. The Bible says if I sow sparingly, well, I'm gonna reap sparingly. If I sow bountifully, then I'm gonna reap bountifully. And that is not said in the scriptures to present some kind of a money market, pyramid scheme with God, that if I give to God, then of course, God's gonna kick back to me, and and he's gonna give back to me. No, no, I have been given so much from God already more than I could ever deserve or I'm worthy of. And because of all that I've been given, I give back to the Lord as an act of worship. For the Bible said, God loves a cheerful giver. Think about all the investments that people make, hoping to get some kind of return in the future. And I believe it's, it's important to be a good steward of what God has entrusted into you as you prepare for what lies ahead here on this earth. But also, I want to prepare for eternity. And thus, I send my treasures ahead, as Jesus said, laying them up in heaven. Well, this poor widow, it says here in Luke's gospel that she came and she offered two mites. And two mites was one-eighth of a cent. That's nothing in the economy of man. But in the economy of heaven, in the way that it was given, Jesus recognizes it and he commends her for the way that she gave, saying that she gave more than everybody combined because of the sacrifice with which was attached to it. A few lessons before we move on. First of all, Jesus observed what was given. Jesus also evaluated what was given. Jesus observed the spirit in which it was given. He evaluated the sacrifice that was attached to that which was given, and he commended this widow for what she had given. Here's the bottom line as it relates to giving to God. Giving to God should be motivated by a thankful heart. It should be motivated by love, my love for the Lord. It it is to be a response. And if I can't give with a cheerful heart, a thankful heart, with a loving response to the Lord, then it's best to keep it because it's really not gonna benefit me in any way or the kingdom Following this observation and commendation of the widow, Jesus now launches into a teaching known as the Olivet Discourse. And the reason that it is referred to as the Olivet Discourse is because Jesus spoke this message from the Mount of Olives, thus the name. But this teaching is also found in the other Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew gives the more extensive teaching on it, listing two chapters, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Mark's Gospel also records the Olivet Discourse as well. But next to the book of Revelation, the Olivet Discourse is one of Scripture's most detailed records of the future. It's been called the Little Apocalypse. And within the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives his last Prophetic word to his disciples, and it's filled with incredible insights as it relates to future events. Now, let me give you a couple of guidelines as you study the Olivet Discourse. And not just studying the Olivet Discourse, let me add, studying all of Scripture, some principles to apply when you study God's Word. First of all, you approach the Word of God and the Olivet Discourse with a great sense of humility. Humility. There have been many scholars who have looked at these passages, expounded on them, great minds, excellent scholarship with various opinions concerning these passages. And so I come very humbly before the word of God. But secondly, I approach this passage of scripture contextually. That is, I read the verses in their context before, I read the verses after, I understand what's going on in the historical setting, I understand who's answering the questions and those who have asked the questions, and as I I read it in its context, this helps me to understand what it is I'm reading. Anytime you read the word of God, you should always read it in its context, because if you don't, that's how cults get started. People take verses out of context, and they establish some false doctrine, some aberrant theological stance that's not found in the completion of scripture because they've taken it out of context. So you study the word contextually. Also, I study this passage of scripture comparatively, comparing scripture with scripture. There are many references that Jesus makes to Old Testament prophetic scripture. And so it's important that I understand that when I study this, I study it comparatively because the best commentary on the Bible, get this, it's the Bible. And if the Bible says something about the Bible, you know that it's true. Regardless of what some commentator will say, if the Bible says this, you know the commentator's wrong. So I study it comparatively, And then also, and this is important, I study it very practically. How does this apply to my life? Here is this this incredible message from Jesus. Well, how does that speak to me right now? And so every time I come to the scriptures, that is how I approach it. And I find that I can walk away knowing more about Jesus in the process. Because the Bible says concerning itself, in the volume of the book, it's written about him. And so hopefully I will come away knowing more about Jesus. Well, with that preface, verse 5. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones, we find here they pointed out the donations that were found within it. But look at what this says right here as Jesus makes some bold predictions, beginning in verse 5. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days are going to come, in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, teacher... But when will these things be, and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? We know from the Gospels collectively that Jesus is now leaving the temple for the last time, and he makes his way to the Mount of Olives. We know from Matthew chapter 23 that as he is leaving the temple... He was lamenting over Jerusalem because they did not recognize him as their Messiah. And he said some solemn words when he said, your house will be left to you desolate. It was upon hearing these words that the disciples pointed out the magnificence of the temple, which included these beautiful stones. They said, but Lord, look, look at the temple. I mean, the temple has been the seat of the Jewish people, their life for a thousand years. Look at the temple, Lord. I mean, Jesus, is he had just pronounced woes on the Pharisees and woes on the religious system, just overturned the tables. And I mean, he was really cleaning house. And so as they're leaving the temple, the disciples are like, but look at the temple, Lord. I mean, this is cool, right? I mean, this is good. And then Jesus says some things that shocked the disciples. He said, listen, this temple, not one stone is going to be left upon another, but all was going to be thrown down. The temple was an impressive building. At this time, it was still under construction, but it was known as one of the greatest wonders in the Roman world. The first temple we know was built by King Solomon. It was magnificent, but it was destroyed by the Babylonians. This temple that the disciples were referring to was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra, and then it was expanded under the uh, architecture design of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great just began to expand and make it so large and vast. It was nearly 500 uh, yards long and 400 yards wide. The rebuilding process started in 19 BC and ended in 63 AD. The temple was finally completed only seven years before it was completely destroyed. But it was not only big, I mean, it was beautiful to behold. The Jewish historian Josephus says that the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun would shine upon the gold, you would look from a distance and it, was, it would just sparkle and it would, it would look like a city of gold because of the reflection Furthermore, we know that on the temple there, there were blocks of marble that were pure white. And strangers, as they would make their way up to Jerusalem or look at it from a distance, seeing the shimmering of the gold plates and noticing the the purity of the white marble, it would look like, and they would say, it looks like it's snowing on Temple Mount. It was just a, a brilliant edifice that had been built there. And the disciples pointed out the stones. Look at the stones, Lord and they were impressive building blocks, to be sure. They were 20 feet high, they were 20 feet wide, 40 feet long, weighing several tons, and they fit together perfectly. There was no need for mortar because of the way they had been constructed. It was an engineered masterpiece. Architects and archaeologists alike have been amazed at how in that primitive culture, they were able to move these things and put them in place. However, What is even more astounding than the building itself or the stones which held it together was the prophetic word spoken by Jesus that it would be completely destroyed. Forty years after these words were spoken by Jesus, a man by the name of Titus Vespasian would come in to Jerusalem and he would completely destroy it, level it, and the temple specifically, not leaving one stone upon another, this prophecy was fulfilled. That is why when Jesus made this prophetic prediction, the disciples, they thought if the temple's gonna be destroyed, the world's gonna end. And so they're asking Jesus, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs that will lead up to this happening? Now, Luke records for us just two questions that were asked. But Matthew records, and as you put Mark together, there are actually three questions that these men asked Jesus. The first was, when is this going to happen? That is the destruction of the temple. When's that gonna take place? Secondly, what will the sign be of your coming, your second coming, and when will be the end of the age? Three questions. The end of the age, meaning the end of the world as we know it. When is all this going to happen? We've never heard anything like this. Now keep in mind, Jesus responds to the question that he is asked, but he is asked by his disciples who were Jews. And thus his response deals primarily with the nation of Israel's future and his coming kingdom. Furthermore, and this is really important to understand when you read this particular passage, the words of Jesus will have both a near fulfillment, and they will also have a future fulfillment. When you read through the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah, and on and on it goes, both major and minor prophets, you will find that many of their prophecies had a near fulfillment, things that sometimes would be fulfilled in their lifetime, and then they had prophecies that were given that would be fulfilled much later on. In fact, when Daniel was writing and he was asking the Lord, what am I writing? The Lord said, Daniel, seal it up. It's not for you. It's for a time later on. They'll understand it later on. But he didn't get it, but he was writing it down. So the prophetic words would have a near fulfillment and they would have a future fulfillment. And such is the case within the Olivet Discourse. Jesus gives us insight into things that will take place between his first coming and his second coming. And the things that will take place will increase in intensity as he points them out, the signs of the times, things that will happen. Look at what it says, beginning in verse eight. And he said, take heed that you do not be deceived for many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them, But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified for these things must come to pass, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Jesus now gives his disciples insight into things that would take place between first and second coming. The disciples didn't know the day or the hour, just like we don't know the day or the hour when Jesus is going to come for his bride. But we do know the things that will take place before that happens. And the first thing we find increasing upon the earth, number one, is religious deception will be increasing. Make note of that. Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will be telling you that this is the time. Luke's account here gives us one verse of warning concerning false messiahs, whereas Matthew's account says much more on the subject. He reports Jesus saying to watch out for counterfeit Christ that would be accompanied by great signs and miracles. He further warns that many would turn away from the faith and that the love of many will grow cold. So he gives this warning to his disciples concerning the increase of religious deception, Historically, it is documented that many had come in their own name, claiming to be the Messiah. In fact, one Old Testament scholar I read who wrote on the book of Daniel, he commented that after the ascension of Jesus Christ, in the first 100 years, no less than 64 men rose up claiming to be the Messiah, And many of these false messiahs gained their popularity and notoriety because they promised to deliver the nation of Israel from the oppression of their enemies. And so they would lead them into battle and they would be completely annihilated and destroyed. Even the early church fathers wrote often about some of these false Christs and false doctrines. Much of the New Testament and the epistles of Paul, for example, were written to contend with those false doctrines that had been making their way into the early church. And if there was warnings given back then, how much more do we see the increase of religious deception at the present time? One example of religious deception that is growing rapidly is that of... Islam. Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world today. In the last 20 years, the number of adherents to Islam has more than doubled. I read a staggering statistic that said in 1982, there were 450 Muslims in the world, but today there are approximately 1.3 billion Muslims worldwide. That means that it's about one out of every five people alive today is Muslim, making it the world's second largest religion. And the numbers continue to grow. Some suggest that there are even more practicing Muslims right now in the United States than Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses combined. There are more Muslims in the world at the present time than there are Catholics. And the Bible warns concerning religious deception that will increase. And it is increasing. And by the way, if you aren't aware of this, Islam is religious deception. That might offend some of you, but that's the truth.
0: Clearly, religious deception is occurring in our day at an alarming rate. You're listening to A Daily Walk with our teacher and pastor, John Randall. Hear the study again anytime you'd like at adailywalk.org and sign up for our free podcast so you can start receiving biblical encouragement on a regular basis. If you'd rather have a CD copy sent your way, that's available for a cost of $5. You can order by phone at 877-242-0828. Have you downloaded our free app? This is a great way to listen to weekly teachings from John. Search for Calvary South OC. It's always encouraging to hear from our listeners, even just a brief email letting us know you're listening and where means a lot. It's an opportunity to say thanks to God for what he's doing. Share a praise report or a prayer request today. You can email that to us at walk at gmail.com. That's walk at gmail.com. We've got a timely resource to share with you today. It's Barry Stagner's book, The Time of the Signs. This will give you a chronology of Earth's final events. As you study the signs Jesus foretold, you'll gather evidence that proves we are living in the very time of these signs. You'll also gain a clear understanding of what will happen and when. That's the time of the signs. Just $12 at adailywalk.org. You can also call 877-242-0828. A Daily Walk is made possible through the support of listeners just like you. With your help, we're able to deliver God's good news all over the nation and world. Would you consider helping us in this venture to get the word out? People are being blessed and helped in their daily walk. Again, to make a secure donation, drop by a adailywalk.org or call us 877-242-0828. Now let's peek ahead to our next study in Luke 21 when we'll again discuss the signs of the times.
1: Within the history of mankind, there have always been wars and battles. In fact, many superpowers fighting against one another, but then you have tribal wars and civil wars and countries that have only increased with time and continue to escalate. As we look around the world, we can see that it is in conflict. We also see prophetic scriptures coming to pass before our eyes in this generation. We see the threat of warfare having in no way decreased, but increased with chemical, biological, nuclear threats. We see nations as mentioned in the word of God, like China and Russia and Iran, all of these nations aligning themselves with one another. We see Korea and on and on it goes as you read through the word of God. And the Bible tells us prophetically that at one point, all of these nations are going to point their artillery at the nation of Israel. And that is being set up. The scaffolding is set. It's just a matter of time before that takes place.
0: That's tomorrow on A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. See you then. A Daily Walk is a presentation of Calvary South O.C.,